Welcome to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT, and with me today is Professor Rob Murgis from the Berkeley School of Law. Today we're talking about the Supreme Court's recent Minerva surgical case and its impact on tech companies. Rob, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Well, let's uh, start, uh, as they say, at the beginning. Uh, the Supreme Court in Minerva held that a signer estoppel survives in some cases, but not all, and then it remanded it back for more fact-finding. And what we know is that it's still an equitable matter that the court will get to decide based on whatever facts it comes up with. So how do you see these types of cases playing out practically in the future? Well, I think we uh, we have some guidance from the Supreme Court, but you know, I think the remand you mentioned uh, is suggestive of the fact that they expect uh, the case law to have to flesh out the factors that will be important. Um, in the Supreme Court opinion, the idea was to return the doctrine to its equitable roots. Uh, they seem to pay attention to the fact that like a lot of patent applications, the claims here were amended, you know, long after the priority date. And in a way that um, the inventor suggested, you know, deviated from his understanding of the nature of the invention. But I think the equitable factor is, is just going to be whether it's fair under the circumstances to find an estoppel given certain facts. And the, and I, the facts that they seem to be suggesting uh, need to be considered are, um, you know, what the inventor knew, how the inventor understood the invention, and maybe you might say the magnitude of the amendments uh, and how far the uh, continuation application was stretched or pushed beyond the boundaries of what the inventor, you know, can be shown to have understood. I think that's really the, those are the equitable factors that they're pushing on. Well, how do you see these equitable factors uh, interplaying with the continuation practice that's become so commonplace? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the Supreme Court didn't make a per se rule or didn't, didn't directly address head on um, perceived abuses of continuation practice. But I think latent in the opinion uh, is uh, some suspicion about, you know, aggressive amendment practicing. And that might suggest to the courts that, you know, if they want to limit the, uh, the uh, effect of the Minerva case, they might just uh, say that this is a case that applies to, you know, sort of radical amendments because we can assume that they weren't contemplated. But the inventor's contemplation would sort of be an afterthought, and the real purpose would be to turn this into a tool. In some cases, you know, only where an inventor is willing to attack his own patent. But in those cases, you could turn this into a tool to limit continuation practice. And maybe that's a suggestion that we ought to take a hard look at that practice outside the estoppel context. I'm not the first person to suggest that continuation practice and you know the purchase of, of open applications 
has been subject to some manipulation. You know, I, I think people have talked about that. So if you see this as a case that is taking a shot at that, um, it's not going to make you worry too much about the scope of Asinor estoppel because unless you have that particular fact pattern, maybe you can get a court to say it's fair to um, apply an estoppel. You know, you want to say moderate normal amendment practice should not give uh, an inventor the opportunity to evade the implied duty to, to stick to the oath they make when filing the application. And every inventor knows there's a certain legitimate zone of variation in the claims. An experienced inventor knows prosecution turns up, uh, you know, a lot, of, a, a lot of occasions when you need to reshape the claim. So I think the two extremes would be to say, you know, any claim amendment eliminates the, the estoppel rule. That would be excessive. And it would probably be extreme to say only under the very same facts of Minerva are we going to, um, you know, apply this new modified test. Somewhere in between is where we'll get. But the equitable factors will have to be developed, you know, by the courts. It's a little like eBay, Wayne, in the sense that we have a decision under an equitable standard. We can tell the direction they want the courts to go, but it's only going to be worked out over time as courts apply that directive that the court's giving them, that the Supreme Court is giving them. That's sort of how I see it. Well, for companies that are dealing with new patent applications, uh, open patent applications right now, yeah. what do you think they need to start thinking about with regard to their assignment practices? I think the safe thing would be to say, you know, if you read directly from the opinion in Minerva, the safe thing would be to say, We've got to get inventors to represent that they understand that there will be some variation in claim language and that their personal subjective understanding of the invention on the filing date will not be the standard that we'll use to figure out what they contemplated as their invention. In other words, you've got to write into the assignment agreement a little flexibility and just tell the inventor, you know, for purposes of this assignment, your invention uh, you know, it constitutes the embodiments that you've given us, reasonable variations on ways to claim it, and you understand that the invention is a generalized term and a lot of different claim sets can be made to fit that invention without deviating from your basic understanding of what you've contributed here. I think you just have to preempt the argument that, oh, I didn't know they were going to make that particular amendment, or, oh, I didn't know that they were going to amend the claims that way, you know? You've got to represent that what you're assigning is the rights to an invention, not a particular set of claims contemplated on the date of the assignment. See what I mean? So differentiate between assigning the rights over your invention as a separate entity in a way from the set of claims that happen to cover it today. See what I mean? Do you anticipate companies taking the path of getting multiple assignments, so one early in the prosecution process and one yeah. after the issuance or at least after claims are allowed? I mean, you know, it's it's a rare corporate lawyer who gets in trouble for being too careful, right? And so if you're using belt and suspenders, I'm going to add a second set of suspenders. Um, I don't think you could be criticized for that. Will it help? You know, who knows? In a random case, it might. One thing I want to point out for people who are experienced, uh, you, you 
Um, if you are thinking of this problem in isolation, the two assignment solution might work. But as you well know, and as many viewers know, listeners know, the European priority rules are extremely strict. So you introduce a second assignment and it opens the door to an argument in Europe that you knew your first assignment wasn't a true assignment of your international priority right, and therefore you lose your European priority. I mean, that argument would be right in front of them if you did that, if you follow what I mean. Uh, having invention and international priority assignments that specifically call out international priority as of the very earliest filing date in the whole chain, that's essential in Europe. So when you add a second assignment, you may be just inviting them to say, well, your first one didn't cover your true invention, so you don't have priority. They seem to enjoy depriving Americans of, pri of priority on this sort of technicality in Europe, but that's a different problem. Well, it seems like there was a, a lot of action when you got to the descent in Minerva. And in maybe some little bit of prediction about the future coming coming out of that that descent, uh, you want to kind of give us your your overview of that. Yeah, so I think the the descent is part of a you know a long running you might say conversation among the justices about um, sort of what type of interpretation or what approach to interpretation generally is going to dominate in the Supreme Court. Barrett is a textualist, an originalist. That's no secret. That's how she got there. And I think the dissent is, is signaling that, you know, I'm going to be an aggressive textualist. Uh, her main point is I don't see the words Asinor Estoppel in the Patent Act. And so from that certain perspective of, you know, long running debate about textualism, originalism versus a more flexible approach, She's just signaling what side she's on, and she's just showing her bona fides. This is, this is what I think. The problem is that it's enormously out of step and fits very poorly in patent law. I mean, as most people listening to this would know, there's all kinds of common law rules and non-patent law rules that modify and affect patent law. Uh, and that's been part of patent law since the first Patent Act, 1790. So to say that I, I don't see a certain doctrine or phrase in the Patent Act, and therefore I won't apply it, would be to reject, you know, reams and reams of case law over the years, where the, especially the Supreme Court has felt free to supplement the Patent Act in a common law way when it thinks it's necessary. And the lower courts do it too. And also, there are just cases where there's a conflict between a general common law principle uh, such as a principle of contract law and some specific rule in patent law when the subject matter of a, pa of a contract is a patent. So there's a little bit of potential conflict, but there's an enormous amount of overlap. So if, 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 you know, to take that argument to sort of an extreme form, if somebody says, well, this patent license is not enforceable because there's no consideration, you know, this hardcore view might say, well, I don't see the word consideration in the Patent Act, so the license doesn't require it, you know. And we would think that that's kind of crazy. But that's sort of the logical implication of the Barrett approach, which is I don't think there is a doctrine of Asinor Estoppel because it's not in the text of the Act. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable point in some areas of law. I mean, you want to talk constitutional rights? There is no common law of constitutional rights in general. It's either in there or it's not. Patent law is different because it's grown up in a commercial context 
and courts have applied common law principles to transactions involving patents, you know, since the very beginning, sometimes the common law principle becomes codified in the Patent Act. But we never say that it wasn't part of patent law before codification, right? So we have a recording statute now, and it has a bona fide purchaser rule, as everybody knows. But the BFP cases, the bona fide purchaser cases, they long predate the, the um, statute version of the, of the bona fide purchaser rule. They were applied as a general matter of commercial law because the court said this patent license raises a bona fide purchaser problem, and we, we have to apply that. So what I'm saying is there are all kinds of ancillary and related common law doctrines. And the problem, I think, with the dissent is Barrett's right off the Seventh Circuit, and she doesn't teach IP. So I really think that she just really didn't know the history and the, the texture of patent law. I think she picked the wrong case, you know, to wave the banner of textualism. If, if they were to take that seriously, then there's a lot of patent law rules that would all of a sudden be up in the air. And certain interpretations of the Patent Act um, that uh, are long established would also be up in the air. Right. So, so, you know, the, the 1952 Act says as, as a type of prior art, if something is in use or on sale, but going back to 1817, we understand that that means public use. Now, we added public use in the text in the AIA, but the 52 Act just says in use or on sale. Right. So the implied public term is just part of patent law. It's been there since you know, Justice Story wrote a case in 1817, Pannock v. Dialogue. And to say all of a sudden, well, I'm a textualist, I don't see public in there, so that's not a requirement. That would stand patent law on its head. That's the kind of mistake you don't want to make. But I, I honestly believe that, you know, if the, if the docket includes more patent cases, then, then she'll be made to understand this and that that was just sort of a, an enthusiastic, you know, shot in the textualist wars and we're not going to apply it literally in, in patent law. It would be a big mistake if we did, I think. It's too many common law principles. Just to give you other examples, as you may know, the non-obviousness test was created, you know, out of whole cloth. They called it the invention test in the 1850s. wasn't in the statute, but the court said we need it. Double patenting was created as a result of a holding in a case. What we call 102E came from a, a, an opinion by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes trying to solve a little priority problem. Now that's codified. My point is codification in patent law sometimes comes after the rules established. And that's why we call it a patent act and not a patent code, right? It's not a comprehensive statement like the UCC tries to be. There are parts of patent law that are understood to be common law. And we just, um, we just accept that. I mean, the whole law of inequitable conduct, except for the new uh, AIA proceeding is not really mentioned in the patent act, right? And yet it's a big part of patent law, so on and so forth. So I think she just was, she was wading in on a, on a, on a sort of theoretical debate. And she just, I think she picked the wrong territory to make her point. That's, that's my point. I, I hope they don't follow that because there's too much patent law that we rely on. Um, I guess if they go that way, we're going to have to try to, you know, create like a UCC of patents. So every single rule, you know, is somewhere in the code, but that would be a nightmare. It's hard enough to teach the act we have now. Well, that gives us something to, to look forward to in the in the future. Um, a whole new set of, of patent rules as we start figuring out the, the AIA 
rules that right. they were got just now 10 years into it. They got their hands full with that. They don't need to be requiring more codification. It's going to be a, you know tricky. So issues like what's, what's the difference between public disclosure and disclosure in the AIA? There's a lot of case law to come on that, as you say. Well, we will definitely reach back out as the district court gets to pick this issue up and uh, explore what yeah. what facts, discovery, and what it's uh, what the progress through the district court looks like. Should mm-hmm. be interesting to watch. Yeah, the hearing transcript, what questions the lawyers ask, and what what facts they try to develop. That'll be interesting to see how they try to attack that equitable factors, you know, uh, requirement. What kind of record they're going to try to build? Be interesting. Well, we'll have a chance to see it soon. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. And uh, greetings to everybody. And thanks for listening.